happy Thursday, everyone. Before we dive into today's author interview, I have a question for you. When was the last time you were kind to yourself? When was the last time you gave yourself a compliment? I think if you asked others what the first word that came to mind when they thought of me was, I think most of them would probably say some derivative of nice or kind or sweet or compassionate. And yes, while it is true I try to treat others that way, I very rarely throughout my life have shown that same compassion to myself. If I spoke to others the way I spoke to myself, I would have no friends, no boyfriend, no one that would want to be around me. During the height of the pandemic last summer, I worked out almost every day in one of my friend's backyard pools. I was about 45 minutes into a 60 minute workout and I wanted so badly to quit and to give up. It was a hard swim, but that day I did something I had never done before in my then 33 years of life. I spoke kindly to myself. I told myself I was doing a great job to not give up, that I was a warrior. And you know what? It felt really, really good. Reading this book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive by Dr. Kristen Neff was another turning point on my journey towards better self-compassion. Take a listen to our conversation. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Kristen Neff to the show today, talking about her book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. This is a topic I specifically need to talk about and read about, and one many of you listeners do too. The book is out June 15th and is a must read. So a little about Dr. Neff. She has been entrenched in self-compassion research for over 20 years and is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. This is her second book about self-compassion and and she has co-developed a training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. She is also the co-founder of the nonprofit Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. Welcome to I'd Rather Be Reading. Thanks, Rachel. I'm very glad you're having me on. Thank you. Great book. And so one of my favorite quotes from the book is, quote, Fierce self-compassion, especially when balanced with tender self-compassion, can help us fight for our rights and counter the harm done by centuries of being told to keep quiet and look pretty. All I can say to that is a resounding yes. So, Kristen, why is it so hard for us as humans, and especially as women, to be compassionate to ourselves? Yeah, well, so I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, I think as human beings, believe it or not, part of it is actually built into our physiology. So uh, when we feel threatened, our instinctual response is to go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Um, But when the threat is ourself, because maybe we failed or made a mistake or feel inadequate, like we fight ourselves, we criticize ourselves, thinking somehow that'll make us control ourselves to stay safe. 
we like we flee in shame. We kind of withdraw from others um, mentally because we're afraid that they'll judge us, or we freeze and we get stuck in the negative thoughts going round and round in our head. Um, so as human beings, we have the threat defense response, but we also have the, the care system, right? This is what helps us feel safe when we feel connected with others. It's, it's help parents help their children feel safe. So when your best friend, for instance, fails at something, you don't feel so personally threatened. So it's easier for you to respond with your care system than it is with yourself. So part of it is just human beings because you know we feel threatened and this is, we kind of react and freak out. <laughs> Um, but this is, for, especially for women, there's also a lot of socialization that goes into it. Um, women are valued when they self-sacrifice. Women actually have a little less self-compassion than men because they feel less entitled to meet their own needs. You know, and people like us, they think we're nice when we give up our own needs and we do what they want. And so that's why this book has, it's, it's a lot about female empowerment in that we need to say, I'm sorry that system's not working for us anymore. Doesn't mean that we still won't give and nurture our children and all those things, but it's not gonna be, we, it can't be so lopsided, right? Because who does that serve, right? It serves the people in power and that still ain't us, you know? <laughs> right, right, so, right. And I'd love for you to expound on this, how gender plays into self-compassion because I find that to be, so fascinating because I really struggle with self-compassion as a woman, whereas some of my male counterparts are really able to forgive themselves a lot more easily, move yeah. on a lot more easily. How does gender play into self-compassion? Yeah, well, so um, so there are really two sides of self-compassion, which I talk about in the book. There's, there's tender self-compassion, which is more um, the nurturing, accepting side of self-compassion. And there's also the fierce side, which is the side that, you know, we protect ourselves, we draw our boundaries, we say no if we need to, and also we motivate change. And so women are socialized to be tender and compassionate toward others. And in fact, they do have higher levels of compassion toward others, but not to themselves because they're socialized to be self-sacrificing. On the other hand, compassion makes more sense to women. So 85% of the people that come to any workshop I teach are women because compassion is part of the female gender role. Um, but fierce self-compassion, you know, the ability to stand up and even get angry if we need to, to protect ourselves, you know, we're really socialized against this. People don't like powerful, fierce, competent women. Unfortunately, that's partly why we still have the glass ceiling. People think that a strong, powerful woman can't be nice because if she's fierce, well, then she can't be tender. And we really like tender, nurturing women. And so, you know, gender role socialization really messes us up. By the way, it also harms men. <clears throat> It harms men because it prevents them from accessing this healing power of tenderness, which is very important for emotional intelligence. So it harms everyone, you know, whether or not you're cisgender or transgender or you know, whatever gender identity you have, anytime society tries to stuff you in a box and say you should be this way, as opposed to your full authentic self, that's gonna cause harm. Um, but historically, you know, I think you have to talk about the P word, patriarchy, right? So these social, these role socializations gave men the power because they were allowed to be fierce and powerful. Women were supposed to just help them raise their children, you know, meet everyone else's needs, which really helped maintain power inequality. So part of what's happening with changing gender roles and the movement toward equality is we're having to say, we're having to become our authentic selves and say, well, who am I really? 
And from my point of view, everyone needs both fierce and tender self-compassion. We need to, you know, meet our own needs. And the, the trick is how do we do that authentically in a way that's right for us personally, as opposed to what society says we're supposed to do. You have blown my mind open with the, the notion that a woman cannot be both fierce and tender at the same time. And how, when we lean into our fierce side as women, it makes the patriarchy so uncomfortable. It does. Well, it's frightening because it's kind of upsetting the social order. That's why, you know, the old saying, the personal is political. It's really true, you know, and, and I think that's partly why I wrote this book. The Me Too movement was a big spur for this book. It's like, you know, okay, I see this as a collective female self-compassion movement. You aren't going to treat us this way anymore. It's just no, you know, yes, and so absolutely. we're saying, yeah, anyway, yeah, so. That's, that's why it's had so much fun writing this book, because I didn't really realize that self-compassion was political. But if you think about it, it is that's saying that our needs count, too, that you can't treat me this way. This 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 has ramifications for our society. And again, not just for women. You know, a lot of people are oppressed, whether it's because of race or gender identity or sexual orientation. You know, when you really say that every single person's needs count and are worthy of compassionate response. These are human beings. You're really confronting the um, oppressive social order. You can be fierce and tender in the same body. It is possible and it is fantastic. I'm yeah. working on becoming both more and yeah. more every day. So I've always wondered this, Kristen, what is the difference in the book? The book touches on this. What is the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem? Right. Okay. So self-esteem is a positive evaluation of self-worth. It's like a judgment. You know, I'm a good person. I'm a bad person. I'm somewhere in between. A compassion actually isn't a judgment or an evaluation. It's just a, a way of kindly relating to yourself because you're a human being intrinsically worthy of respect and care. And so people with more self-compassion also have higher self-esteem, but it's, it's kind of an unconditional source of self-worth where self-esteem is usually very conditional. It's conditional on feeling special and above average, right? So self-esteem tends to be comparative. Uh, you know, why do people bully others or pick on others? Partly because it raises their self-esteem. You know, I feel like I'm the cool person and you're the nerdy person or whatever it is. So it's constantly, you know, if I see someone who's super successful, that makes my self-esteem be lowered. So it's comparative, which is, can be harmful. And then also it's contingent. It's contingent on uh, the three main ways it's contingent is it's contingent on success. So whether that's athletics or business, your career, whatever it is that you, it's important to you, it's like a fair weather friend. It's there for you on the good times and you succeed, but it deserts you exactly when you need it most and that's when you fail. It's also contingent on perceived appearance. For women, and unfortunately for women, that's the number one determinant of self-esteem is how attractive we think, how attractive we think other people find us, which you know, we know all the problems that that leads to, I mean, a lot of pain and suffering. Um, and then also a, a social approval. And it's not like how much my mother or my best friends like me. It's like what other people think of me. So we have this constant filter of like, well, how does that look to other people? And that's constantly affecting us. And so self-compassion really frees us from all of that. It says, you know, regardless of whether we succeed or fail, regardless of how I look or what people think of me, I am a, a human being 
and worthy of kindness, you know, even when I fail. And then what that does is people might think, well, does that mean I just accept failure and I become complacent? No, that, that's where the, so the tender self-compassion is the unconditional self-acceptance. The fear self-compassion says, hey, you know, your behavior, that's harming you. Or, you know, the situation you're in, that's harmful for you. I care about you. I want to alleviate your suffering, which is like the motivation of self-compassion. We need to make a change. And so self-compassion actually enhances motivation, but it's not, we don't, we aren't motivated to achieve because we're inadequate. We're motivated to achieve because we care and we want to be happy. And it's a much more effective and sustainable form of motivation. So fascinating because I pour so much of myself, Kristen, into my relationships and pour uh, so little into my relationship with myself. Yeah. And, you know, this, the book, again, if you're self-compassion out June 15th is chock full of advice on how to turn self-compassion into a practice. Obviously listeners go get the book for the full, uh, the full pr pros on this. It's, it's so good, but just give us a primer, if you will, of, of some steps we of how we can do this. How can we have a self-compassion practice? Yeah, so this is the nice thing. So the last 10 years of my career, I've mainly been focusing on just this. I don't need to prove it's a good thing. We know that through the research. There's 3,500 studies. But um, how do we teach people to be self-compassionate? The good news is it's actually not that difficult. It's not as difficult as, let's say, meditation, where you've got to calm your mind down. It takes a lot of practice. All you have to do is really, it's a lot about giving yourself permission. So the good news, especially women, is we already know how to be compassionate. We know how to use our tone of voice. We know what to say. We know how to listen. We know how to give support. We know how to use you know, warmth and care. We just need to give ourselves permission to do a U-turn and turn that inward. So a very, very simple way to practice self-compassion is just to say, if I had a really good friend that I cared about who was in the exact same situation I'm in, what would I say to that friend? How would I say it? And then that's your template for what to say to yourself. Um, another thing you can do is uh, there's actually three components to self-compassion. It's almost like a recipe. You need all three ingredients to have self-compassion. The first is mindfulness, being aware of our difficulty, our struggle, our suffering. So just validating this is really hard for me. I'm scared. I don't know what to do, or I feel badly, whatever. So painted. If you had a friend who was trying to call you up and say, Hey, Rachel, I need to talk. I'm upset. You said, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. I can't, I can't, I can't listen to you. You couldn't give her compassion. So the first thing is we have to listen to ourselves, which takes mindfulness. Ah, oh, this is really hard. And then we, compassion is a connected state of mind. It's not like self-pity, poor is me. Calm in the Latin, you know, calm means with, passion means to suffer, suffer with. It's a connected way of being with their suffering. In other words, there's nothing wrong with me for failing or having hard times. I'm not abnormal. In fact, this is what makes us human. I'm not alone. We forget that. So self-compassion reminds us this is, this is what's supposed to be happening. This is the human condition. So remember other people, we don't feel so alone. And then we do the kindness, which might be something like, what do I say to a friend? And there's a lot of research showing that just if you can write yourself a letter, paragraph acknowledging, validating your pain, reminding yourself that you aren't alone, you're connected to others and some words of kindness, and it can radically change your well-being. Um, 
So again, it's it's really not that difficult. And so I have a lot of practices in my books. It, it's actually, this is what you can do uh, in order to gain the skill. So good, so good. I wanna, I wanna reiterate what you just said. The three, and you'll, listeners, when you read the book, you'll, you'll, it'll be driven home, but the three elements of self-compassion are mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness. I love that. So uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book, Kristen, is do, is quote, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. An addendum should be, this is so true for me, do not do unto others as you do unto yourself, or you'll have no friends. (laughs) Again, yes, yes, yes. Um, You know, at least in my life, I can't speak for everyone, but I would never treat others the way I treat Mm -hmm. myself, be so critical and so demanding and so unkind, honestly. Why do we always put, and I say we very generally, I'm talking really about myself, but why do so many of us put ourselves last and why is it so hard to be kind to ourselves, especially as women? Yeah. So, and, and by the way, it is really common. I mean, the vast majority, about three quarters of people are significantly kinder to others than they are to themselves. So you aren't alone in this. And again, I think, like I said, part of it may be just because we go into threat defense mode. When we when we see something we've done, we, we feel frightened and that leads us to react in a different way than our friends where we aren't so threatened by their failure. So we can, you know, use this other system. But a lot of it really is um, a lot of our our misperceptions of self-compassion. So there's part of us, we beat ourselves up that thinks we're helping. It's like, there's a part of us that thinks, well, if I beat myself up, then I'm gonna not do it again, or it's gonna force me to change. And you might say kind of the underlying motivation of self-criticism is this desire to help. It's just not very effective, right? It's much more effective to help yourself through encouragement saying, okay, what can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? That's actually a much more effective form of motivation. But we don't know that. No one teaches us this. Did anyone tell you when you're growing up that this is a good skill to cultivate? No, in fact, we get the message that, you know, we're supposed to be self-critical, that, you know, if we're hard on ourselves, that's a good thing. Uh, So we think it's going to make us lazy. We think it's going to undermine our motivation. We think it's going to make us selfish. Again, gender roles, women think it's, you know, they shouldn't be meeting their own needs. Here's the reason that why that's so false, because we're, we're, we affect each other emotionally. So we have a whole mirror neuron system so that the people I interact with, they read my emotions, I read their emotions. This isn't, this isn't through language. This is just, you know, at the kind of neuronal level, we pick up on others' emotions. So what you cultivate internally, you bring to every single person you interact with during the day. And so if inside your own mind, you're full of kind of kindness and mindfulness and feelings of connection, and you bring that to everyone you interact with, that's going to actually help enhance their experience. And if you're full of like shame and negativity and self-criticism, you know, then that means that's what you're bringing to your interactions. So the whole idea that we're separate from others, that itself is an illusion because we're always interacting, again, at the pre-verbal neuronal level. So what we cultivate inside impacts other people as well. And that's why it's so heartbreaking when people think it's selfish because it's anything but. And it also provides more resources for you to have more giving positive relationships. And that's what the research shows as well. And not to burn out from being a caregiver. You know, if we give and we give and we give and we don't replenish ourselves, we are going to run dry. But if we include ourselves in the... Yeah. Well, if we include ourselves, we'll have more resources to continue to give. Mm 
led perfectly into my next question, which is, you know, so many of us, especially women are, are caretakers in some yes. form, whether it is as a mother or whether it is to an aging parent or, yes. a, you know, a lot of women gravitate towards caretaker jobs, whether it be a Absolutely. nurse or a teacher. So yes. how can we care for others without losing ourselves? Yeah. And so, and so I've actually developed a whole um, training program for caregivers. Now, same to healthcare professionals, but we've also taught it to teachers and we have also have a um, yeah, program for educators and for parents. Uh, and so self-compassion, I really think it should be included in the training curriculum, of any sort of like, you know, whether it's med school or any sort of training curriculum, being a teacher, because um, self-compassion is a really powerful way to help reduce burnout. Now, by the way, it doesn't solve all the problems. Some of the problem is structural, you know, teachers are overworked, nurses are overworked. So the system, we are, it's not just about changing ourselves, it's also about changing the system. And that's where fierce self-compassion comes in. But part of it is also how we relate to ourselves. And so what the research shows is the more you can um, be kind and supportive towards yourself, when you're giving a caregiver, you know, acknowledging, well, I'm so exhausted, I'm so frustrated, what do I need in the moment? How can I care for myself? And remembering that you aren't alone, being kind, being encouraging, it really helps. Uh, and then also, is to the extent you can, self-care. Now, self-care, unfortunately, self-care is good. It doesn't solve all the problem because self-care doesn't help you in the moment of caregiving, right? You can't like, as you're tending to your elderly, parent, you can't say, oh, I'm going to do yoga, right? It's like, compassion can say, as you're tending to your elderly parent, this is so hard, I feel so much grief, or whatever's going on, you can turn that inward emotionally in the moment. But then also, it also leads to more self-care when you can outside the caregiving setting, you know, exercise, um, uh, getting the sleep you need, for instance. So it's... So let me let me say this and and you can correct me if i'm wrong but okay. i'm having a light bulb moment over here so self-esteem and self-care those are so often based on external forces right yes uh, and circumstantial uh, a lot of variables there but self-compassion is not that is an inward practice that you can always have a circumstance independent right yes yeah, go yeah. ahead. It, it well, well, so I end the book with one, one of my favorite sayings is the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess, right? So your life <laughs> yes. will still be a mess. Things will still go yes. wrong. You'll still be a mess. You know, so the mess will still occur. So, you know, the, the, the circumstances will still be a mess, but can you be compassionate toward that mess? It's really a mind state. It's a way of relating to whatever is happening. Um, with warmth, with kindness, with remembering that you're connected to others, you aren't alone. Um, you're a human being worthy of care, kindness, encouragement, support, warmth, love. You know, and and because of that, it's it's uh, unconditional, and that's why it's a much more stable source of resilience. I, I, even as the world is you know, exploding around going us. to hell in a handbasket. Yes. <laughs> we can still be grounded in that fierce self-compassion. That is yes. that can be a stable force and not only can be, should be a stable yeah. force in our lives. So as we wrap up our time together, um, you're a self-compassion expert. Okay. Um, you, you know, this better than, than most, but 
you're also a human being. And uh-huh. so you're bound to slip up and not practice self-compassion sometimes. Um, I'm yeah. practiced ever since I read the book, again, Fear Self-Compassion out June 15th. Ever since I read the book, I've really been working on my self-compassion practice, but mm-hmm. I'm going to fall off, right? It, it's, yeah. it's inevitable. So how, when you fall off, how do you get yourself back on track? Right. So the cool thing about self-compassion is it can hold anything. So it can hold the pain of failing to practice self-compassion. It can hold the pain of self-criticism. It can hold the pain of shame, right? So whatever's occurring, again, if you think of that compassionate mess, whatever is occurring in the moment, if there's any pain there, so, so compassion is, you might say, a way of holding pain with love and connectedness. So whatever the cause, including not practicing self-compassion, you just are compassionate toward that and then you're back on again, right? So again, in a, in a way, it almost doesn't matter what's happening in terms of mentally or emotionally or in your life, it's a way of oriented, orienting toward what's happening and then you get back on again. So yeah, occasionally I fall off and I start feeling some shame or you know, I, I'm pretty much not, I don't really beat myself up anymore. I'm pretty habituated to that. I'm still a mess though. I still make mistakes <laughs> all the time. I still get sure. reactive anger. I still, you know, I'm still very human. I've improved maybe a little bit over 20, 30 years, but not a whole lot. But it does become more habitual to react with compassion. Or if you forget to almost immediately react to that with compassion. I look so forward to getting to the just, point where, where self-compassion is habitual for me. It's habitual, and it, but it will get that way. I mean, it's a lifetime of the other way of criticism. And again, with the underlying belief that that's somehow helping us, it's really not. And the research is very clear on this. So, you know, we have a saying, walk slowly, go farther. Just, you know, just go slowly, step by step. But what you could always do with compassion is just where, where, where are you hurting? Are you hurting because like, I can't practice self-compassion? Oh, that's hard. You know, it hurts not to feel like you want to, you want to have this new way of being, you want to be well and happy and you feel you're falling short and you just have to imagine if a friend said that you would say, Oh, keep trying. That's okay. You know, it's, it's, uh, I do care about you or whatever it is you would say. Um, that's what you can do with compassion. So it's not like a destination. It's not like a goal you get to, and then you're there. It's really a way of being, it's a way of traveling the journey. Um, and you fall off, you get off balance and then you orient that with orient toward that with compassion, then you're back on again. I so needed this conversation today. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, readers or readers, listeners, you need to become readers and pick up fear self-compassion when it comes out June 15th. Kristen, thank you so much for being here. And may we all be a little kinder to ourselves today. Thank you for yes. being here. Thank you, Rachel, especially you. Good luck on your journey of self-compassion. Everyone, I'm on everyone the journey, knows. realizing that it is a journey, not necessarily a, journey. a destination. Just remember compassionate mess. That is an achievable goal, believe it or not. Amen to that, the uh, emphasis and underline on the mess part. <laughs> and that's okay, that's human, you know? That's what it's all about. So- Okay, so I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Say something kind to yourself right now. Did you do it? My friend, you deserve that kindness right now. Not when you lose 10 more pounds or when you get that promotion or when you buy that house right now.
Now the next step is making this a daily practice. I encourage you to pick up fierce self-compassion. It will definitely help you in that effort. I do have one companion piece this week. You Are Your Best Thing by Dr. Brene Brown and Tarana Burke. Both of these women are absolute powerhouses in my mind. Brene Brown is an author, a speaker, a podcaster, a researcher whose work deals with shame and vulnerability. And Tarana Burke founded the Me Too movement. They've come together in this book to edit essays on shame and healing specifically within the black community. It really resonated with me and I know it will resonate with you too. So what should I be reading that I'm not reading? Email me at hello, I'd rather be reading at gmail.com and let me know. And while you're at it, take a moment to follow, rate, and review the show. And thank you so much, as always, for being here today. On Monday, we've got another author interview you won't want to miss. We are nearing the end of season one and are already gearing up for a really exciting season two. So please stay tuned. We'll talk soon and have a great weekend. And don't forget to be kind to yourself.